Today on this episode of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. So the research suggests that um, lesbian women are not being screened at the level that they are, uh, that they should be. Today, Dr. Crystal Kittle discusses topics in aging and health in the LGBTQIA community in this edition of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. I'm your host, Senior Vice President and Medical Director, Dr. Tim Wright, and joining me on the podcast today is Dr. Crystal Kittle. Dr. Kittle is an Assistant Professor of Community Health Education in the Department of Health Promotion and Policy at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. Dr. Kittle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So to start off, could you describe your research and teaching setting? Sure. I am a newly appointed Assistant Professor in the School of Public Health at University of Massachusetts Amherst in the Community Health Education Program. I am not teaching yet. I will be teaching my first course next semester. So I'm focusing right now on my research project that I brought from my previous institution. Beautiful. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But to start off, I, I folks who listen to the podcast know I'm always interested in others' path to how they got to where they are. Can you share yours? Yes. I did my undergrad in history and Chicano studies at UCLA, and it was really um, in my those younger <laughs> days where I fully learned and started to understand and appreciate this concept, I guess, of health equity and inequalities and um, really the multiple layers of that in terms of different identities. Um, and so that's kind of really the, the catalyst for where I'm at now. But, um, I, I sort of went, I, I had a plan to go into like a history of consciousness, PhD program and life things got in the way. So I ended up in a anthropology master's program and in the department, um, I really, a lot of people were looking at different ethnic groups and, um, and, and a cult with a cultural, you know, um, anthropological lens. And I somehow just started thinking about this idea of like aging in a cultural way. Like what are the cultural norms when it comes to aging? And then thinking about like, well, how do people in different cultures age then? It's, it can't all be the same. I'm sure there's a lot of similarities, but thinking about it that way. Um, and, you know, as part of the um, program, you, we had to um, complete an internship. And the I was living very closely and starting to frequent the LGBT center in Long Beach. And I decided to, you know, go ahead and do my internship there. And, and it was right around the time of Prop 8. And there was, I'll never forget, I was manning the front desk. Uh, so to speak, and helping out. And um, an older older woman, a constituent of the center came in and just very blatantly asked me, kind of in a joking way, um, tongue in cheek, but why don't you have anything here for us old, old ladies? That's how she said it. You know, she was very sweet and funny and I said, and someone, someone else turned around and said, we have a 40 plus group. 
And even I was like, that's not old. You know, it, there's a very big difference. And I was what, you know, early 20s, but I still knew that there were many differences between being, you know, for people in their 40s versus this person who was probably in their 70s or 80s. Um, and so that became my my thesis project. Um, I started to ask, she was my first participant, first participant, and then we did some snowball sampling and um, I was able to interview, I don't remember how many, but quite a few. I focused on women, so I, I interviewed um, uh, female identified lesbians and bisexual women. And we talked about aging experiences. And um, a, a lot of what I was focused on too at that time was like sexuality and what that means in terms of aging. And then ultimately, if you had an ideal support group here at the center where you, you know, could come however often, what would that look like? And so that was the, that was the beginning of gerontology. Um, my advisor in the anthropology department, you know, was really excited. It was kind of the first time that someone was looking at aging in the department. And he really, um, he really, you know, encouraged me to seek gerontology. So I went ahead and onto the PhD program at UMass Boston in gerontology. And um, there also was a pretty clear, um, there was a good space for me to fill in terms of looking at LGBT aging. And there were um, a few really wonderful um, researchers that were in the space in terms of aging and, and differences for LGBT folks, but not in the department, you know, elsewhere at other universities, but there was definitely still room to to look at various things within that. So that's that's how I got here and um, did my public or got into public health through my postdoc with Dr. Jason Flatt at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, um, who I'd met gerontology, who was another aging researcher, but more with the public health background. Um, and we had become friends through the Gerontological Society of America, where we had were one of the first members of the Rainbow Research Group, which has expanded. It's so beautiful to see um, so many people are part of the group now. But yeah, he had a um, he had wanted a postdoc, and I joined, and it was a really really wonderful experience. And we wrote some grants together, and then there really just was an opportunity for a tenure track position there. So I started my search and ended up here back in Boston where I did my PhD. So <laughs> there you go. It's all, all Massachusetts all the time from then on out. Yep. Welcome. Welcome to the Commonwealth. Um, uh, as a, as a uh, lifelong Massachusetts resident and, and sometimes, you know, we, we fool around with the term asshole, but no, it's a, it, we're, we're Bay Stater or what? Well, I am married to one. Uh, there you go. <laughs> by by proxy, you're 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 with us. And this is a very interesting area because I I think before we started recording, I, I mentioned to you that we had Ashton Applewhite on, who is an anti aging activist as well. And you know, she brought to the fore in our discussion that you know there are varying levels of ageism within you know. So she pointed out that for men versus women, and obviously folks who are white versus people of color. And I, I want, if you can comment a bit about adding another layer here, 
to, you know, folks who are in the LGBTQ community, how does that add to the ageism that we see, particularly, you know, in healthcare and so forth? Yeah. Um, so for my dissertation, which really uh, examined healthcare access and utilization and the role of um, other sociodemic background, sociodemographic backgrounds and also social support, um, it was seeming from the data, uh, I did find that there were some differences. Um, and when talking to um, other researchers who have been in the um, world of sexual and gender minority or LGBTQ health disparities, not so much in terms of aging, but just who have been around in that space for a very long time and kind of running, kind of talking to them about what I'm finding in the data and trying to understand if my, if why I might be seeing these things, I did get some confirmation that aging for gay men is quite, uh, is looked at more negatively, definitely so much, much more than among lesbian women, for example. Um, and that is from what they said, I'm, I'm not a gay man, but from what others who do identify as such and are much more, uh, have much more, um, experience, I guess that, um, definitely it's more, there's much more stigma around getting older and aging and how that, how aging typically, um, or can some people think affect your physical appearance in not such a great way, more of a negative connotation. Right. So, um, yeah. So from what others have said, who, like I, like I mentioned, are more in that world, there is definitely, uh, from their perspectives, Aging is a more challenging thing um, for for gay men who emphasize physical appearance. Um, one thing that I myself found in my early research too, with those uh, bisexual and uh, lesbian women, um, when th- when talking to them about aging, was this total. Uh, several of the of the people I talked to said. It is so nice. They felt that being lesbian was part of the reason that they just did not give a crap about aging gracefully, physically, or whatever. And it, they felt so free by that lack of, um, you know, expectation to maintain physical appearance and felt sorry for their heterosexual friends that were so stuck on that and really, um, you know, had more of a negative feeling about it. You know, that almost feels like a bit of culture, you know, to, to your anthropog- anthropologic background, that there, there's sort of a cultural thing there. And I also, I, I did read um, the abstract to, to your dissertation. I, I think that there were some points in here about um, screening and um, folks were maybe getting some discrimination about healthcare screening or, uh, can you elaborate a little bit on that and how learning about this could certainly help healthcare providers when, when they're dealing with their LGBTQ um, patients. So the research suggests that um, lesbian women are not being screened at the level that they are, uh, that they should be. Um, and that sort of is, I think, largely based on like just um, a lack of understanding about 
biology and kind of this lack awareness, like a medical lack of awareness. But, um, but also when age comes into it, it seems to um, mitigate that issue. So what I was finding is that um, a lot of like lesbians were kind of holding off on the screening because they were afraid it's, it's medical care that they're just afraid they're going to be discriminated against. They kind of avoiding it, but aging and their knowledge of like the importance of, you know, going to the doctor and taking care of these things that start to come up with aging definitely, you know, override those fears um, because they just kind of have to do it. So, but really it's still important to think about not needing to wait to that point, but making people feel comfortable from a very early age, you know, um, to come to the doctor, that discrimination is not going to happen. That stigma is not going to be anywhere in the room and things like that. Um, but I, I, my dissertation also showed that, um, in people with more social support are also being screened more. So it's this idea of, um, you know, a lot of times people don't, or the LGBT community doesn't, people in this community, these communities don't seek health care because of their peers' negative experiences. But we're seeing that if peers are having positive experiences and sharing those with with others and saying, you know, this, it was okay. I did feel safe. Maybe this is why the social support is showing, um, you know, statistically that there is more screening happening. Right. And, and this, this sort of definitely supports some of the things that we've already discussed on the podcast with other guests that, you know, patients tend to feel more relaxed when they're with a practitioner who looks like them, who, who is like them. Um, you know, when we talked, um, to, uh, uh, Dallas Dukar from Trans Health, you know, she talked about how this is trans health by trans people for trans people. And, you know, I think that the other thing that, you know, sort of as a heterosexual male, one of the things that, you know, I immediately did when, when people were talking about this, I put my pronouns um, in my signature on my email. Well, people don't need, you know, I mean, l- let me rephrase, you know, people who know me, you know, know that I'm, you know, a cisgender heterosexual male, but by putting those pronouns in my signature, that signals to people that I'm aware of that. And that's something I'm paying attention to. Um, just recently took my dad to his primary care physician and they have, you know, a, uh, LGBTQIA flag on the door of the clinic. So I think for the folks who are listening who are in the healthcare audience, what I'm hearing you say, and I think it's reinforcing some of the things we've heard is, is that, you know, we need to be proactive as healthcare providers to help patients feel comfortable in our space. So we give them positive experiences. Absolutely. It's symbolic, just how these symbols of acceptance and inclusion, and it can go so far. I have a, I'm my current research, which maybe we'll talk about, but it's, This is just reminding me of um, a person that I just talked to who is a caregiver and um, she herself is queer and her, you know, parent who she's caregiving for, who has dementia, is cis and hetero. When she takes her her, her father to the doctor, she herself feels like she can talk to the doctor after more that has all of those symbols and that has made it clear that 
it, you know, it kind of even, it, it's, it's obviously about the father, but it's also about the caregiver because this is a person that is closest to them and, and they need to feel comfortable too. And she just said that the first couple doctors she had seen, it, it was actually the neurologist that had these symbols, but like other doctors that she was seeing, she didn't feel so comfortable. And she would kind of like get the information out and get the information she needed. But that was it. It was like very minimal. She sat in this doctor's office that had all these symbols and they like talked and she just felt so relieved. It made her feel so good. And she felt like her, I guess, in a way, like her father was in good hands too. But yeah, it really made a big difference. And so that just kind of popped into my mind as we're talking about this. Um, Actually, that's a nice segue. You did an excellent segue to, I was going to ask you about your current research. Um, you know, we've also been dealing uh, on the podcast with the issues of Alzheimer's and, and dementia and, and things such as that. So I'm really interested in your current research. Yeah. So um, it is uh, Alzheimer's Association an NIH-funded project. It's called Q-Care or Cuidar in Spanish, and it's all about uh, queer caregiving. So the caregiver themselves identifies as LGBTQIA+, and is caring for someone with um, Alzheimer's disease or related dementia specifically. And I wanted to uh, get into this research because we know a lot about the health disparities and the health inequities of all these different uh identities. So LGBTQI plus caregiver, dementia caregiver specifically. And then another layer is in my project, it's all non-white caregivers. So they're all, they all have a racial ethnic minority background. So surely we all know about those disparities. Um, so really the idea was to kind of look at how these multiple, you know, minoritized identities really influence the caregiver's health. Um, and they're, you know, they're, their social health, their physical health, their mental health, how they're accessing services. Um, and so that's what it's about. And, you know, I did a pretty, I started it off with a, a large data set that I did some um, secondary data analysis with and found that some interesting things that um, I did a comparison of LGBTQIA plus versus non-LGBTQIA plus uh, all dementia caregivers and found that the um, LGBTQIA plus caregivers were significantly younger um, and had more days of uh, you know, poor mental health outcomes in a month, um, so significantly more, about eight days more that they're reporting. And also another interesting finding, which I'm still working, thinking through, is they were more often to live in rural areas. Um, which there's a lot of things that could be going on there, but still kind of like teasing that out a bit. And the way you do that, right, is following it up with some good qualitative data. So interviewing people, and you know, these aren't the same caregivers, but these are um, people that I have recruited, which has been very challenging, but I'm still working on it. It's just hard to, you know, really get um, folks to participate that have all these very specific identities and that are very often uh, not involved in research because of fears of, uh, like we were talking about, just stigma, discrimination, things like that. And so I'm so grateful for those who have talked to me. I'm hoping to talk to some more in the next couple of years, um, but, or a year and a half maybe. But um, yeah, finding some really interesting things. Um, there are, you know, 
caregivers that um, are afraid of some interesting um, things I'd like to share is there is when I'm seeing caregivers that it kind of goes what we were with what we were talking about, but um, afraid that their identity is going to influence the care, not the care that they're providing, obviously, but the formal care that their uh, loved one that they're caring for is going to receive. Um, there's a lot around gender identity. So um, a lot of, you know, um, cultures, right, believe that um, female children, uh, like grown, you know, female adult children will caregive. They're first in line, you know, sort of matter what, it doesn't matter if they have um, families or jobs, but there's more of that sort of understanding. It's not always, but there is often, right? And so um, what does that look like for for trans caregivers? It's pretty complex. You know, there's there's uh, trans male identified caregivers that I've talked to who just say, I don't know why my mom just keeps saying, you're supposed to take care of me, you're my daughter, you know, or everyone in the family is pointing at them because they're the daughter, but they're like, I'm not a daughter, I'm not, I'm, you know, so things like that. And I think um, the other, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I, 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 the other thing that came into my mind when you were talking about this is also that it can kind of also affect agency. If that, if the caregiver is the person who has the agency and, and you know, full disclosure, I, I you know, have a, a family member who might be, you know, having some of these situations and, and I go with them, you know, the, the agency in the situation now is to the caregiver. And if the caregiver is feeling uncomfortable or, like they're not being seen or heard, that automatically sort of diminishes their agency to help what I hear you saying, the care of their loved ones. So yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's one of the things that I always think we should do as healthcare providers is sort of, you know, is sort of check our internal biases or at least think about our internal biases and, and before we start talking to a patient. But yeah, it's, it's tough in your own family. Um, as the physician in my family, I'm like the one that goes with everyone to all the doctor's appointments anyways. But yes, I get, I, I get what that person is saying is like, Hey, wait a minute. Why am I the person that's, um, on the hook for all of this? Anyways, that was an interesting finding. Yeah. I think checking in with the caregiver is just so important and understanding their sort of, uh, trying to at least get somewhat of an understanding of their role in all of this and the things if the, the physician just has a, even a little bit of knowledge about the complexity of this, these kind of situations and the possibilities, right, they can kind of take that extra moment to, to, to talk to the caregiver themselves and be like, how are you doing? How are things? How's the dynamic? Um, you know, you have supports. Here they are. There's, there's LGBT-specific caregiving supports online. There's groups. There's you know, even things you can live anywhere as long as you have internet access, which I know isn't always possible. Um, and so I, I, yeah, I think that just that awareness, there is such a, it's so challenging when it comes to that, that education, the, um, the lack thereof in, in med, med school. Right. And I don't, that's changed since sort of my health, um, when I was looking at that stuff in my dissertation, it's been a few years, maybe it's better now, but I think that I think it also is dependent upon it as your as a trainer. And, you know, when I was in my 
when I was in medical school and in my residency, it was very apparent to me, you know, which of the attending physicians, you know, particularly in infectious disease. And when I was going through my residency, HIV AIDS was really sort of, you know, just started becoming a, a medical issue that we all had to really deal with day in and day out. And I think that people weren't thinking about this or they were thinking about it. There, there was a lot of taboo, but I have to say that the infectious disease docs that I knew um, were sort of opened a lot of our minds about, you know, these are just patients with an illness and their sexual orientation, you know, is not a factor that should affect your care, that you have to care for these patients, you know, as people. And I think that, you know, that was the one of the groups that sort of opened myself and some of the other residents' minds in the program. And I think that, you know, parts of the country to this day are probably not, you know, that is not being trained as well in, in some of the practitioners. And I think it's incumbent upon the practitioners themselves to just sort of like, you know, help meet the patients where they are, to use a phrase that I, I was trained with quite a bit. I do want to, I do want to acknowledge one thing because I think that, you know, obviously as Alzheimer's disease and dementia is a huge burden period. Uh, so the caregivers are obviously going to have, you know, a lot of stuff on their plate. You're seeing someone you love and care for sort of diminish gradually or rapidly. And then if you, so that's a tough enough job for the caregiver. And then to have this added layer of stress must be really significant in some of the people that you're talking to. Yeah. I think particularly when that person that they're providing care to doesn't accept who they are. Yeah. So yeah. the caregiver, you know, how do you put so much blood, sweat, and tears into caring for someone that doesn't and never has, uh, I'm talking when it's like a parent. Okay. So a parent did um so there's that and i'm interested to kind of some future research and some things to think about is um those providing care to those who have survived the aids epidemic as a partner say and that are now providing care to another partner or friend and thinking about bereavement and surviving them so I think this is something that we're going to see a lot more of in the LGBTQI plus community because this community really came together right through the pan the AIDS epidemic. And for the most part, everyone was just taking care of each other. And a lot of people passed away. And those people that survived, a lot of them now are, in, are caring for others. A lot of LGBTQIA plus people care for even their past partners way more than seeing the cis heterosexual uh, population. And so there is really like informal caregiving is more, it's, it's, it, it is way more um, of a thing <laughs> in sexual gender minorities and so I'm interested to, to see kind of with this explosion of uh, dementia and just how 
many people are are living with it now and this rise of caregivers and LGBT caregivers and dementia caregivers specifically what what we're going to see in terms of these the health of the the caregiver because living through at least one um of those losses with AIDS um and so that's something to that I'm I'm thinking a lot about it's going to take some time to like figure out how to get these data and stuff. But, um, but yeah, there's a lot of differences. We're seeing that, you know, LGBT caregivers provide even sort of different tasks than non-LGBT. So there's a lot more of that personal care versus like being, you know, someone with their logistical things, money, balancing things, getting rides, doctor's appointments, but there's really a lot more of that bathing, personal, uh, real hands-on care. So that's interesting. Um, and I do think, uh-huh. I was going to say, I think some of that does come from generally, um, this like more, you know, there's less stigma around like these, like aging and, um, generally, I mean, we talked about the one, one subpopulation that might be in a different way, but generally this, this different sort of understanding. And so it can't, you can have those really close, intimate moments without there being shame to a lesser degree, maybe. Um, so that's interesting. I think this is a great place, um, to, to end the conversation, but I am going to ask you that when you do start that research um, and have some results, I, I'd love to have you back because I think that some of this will definitely help um, inform uh, and prepare healthcare providers um, to meet their patients where they are, if you will. But thank you very much for today's conversation. This was great. Thank you so much. And that's today's episode of the Specialist Spotlight. Thank you for joining us. For more stories like these, visit us at pvroundup.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletters. Thoughts, comments, or suggestions? Please leave us a review on your preferred listening platform or email us at editorial at pvroundup.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Google. You can also download our Amazon Alexa Flash Briefing, Medical News Roundup, and just ask, what's my Flash Briefing? Thanks today to our guest, Dr. Crystal Kittle, and to Norm Dion, Sean Mullins, and Kate Rio for production assistance. Join me next time for an episode where we cover the latest stories in the world of medicine.